This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Friday, January 5th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest to go over her top 10 movies of 2023. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Inverse Entertainment Editor and Trekking Through Time and Space co-host, White Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. AC, welcome back. How are you? I'm back. I'm back. I'm good. I'm happy to be back on the pod. I feel like it's been... A year since it has last been. year. <laughs> yes, it, it actually has been. And uh, I'm happy that we're continuing this um, nascent tradition that we started last year of having you on to talk about your top 10 films of the year. Because I think last year you did not have a place to actually physically publish like a written list of your top 10. And uh, I assume that's the same now, right? Like You haven't published that anywhere, have you? I haven't published my own personal top 10 list. Uh, I have published a top 15 on my letterbox, but without any, you know, actual writing involved. And mm-hmm. on inverse.com, you can find under the Inverse Awards, which is a, uh, a yearly sort of package of the best of the year kind of things. Um, we did publish a top 25 movies list and top 25 TV list, uh, but I did not do my own personal list or write about it anywhere. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I will put links to those in the show notes for people to check those out. And I'm excited to find out what these movies are because I I just started Letterboxd. Like, uh, I, I think I created an account like a couple years ago or something and like rated one thing one time and just kind of dropped off and like never really paid attention to it. But I am trying to give it a go in 2024. And I'm going to try to rate like everything that I watch and keep track of everything that way. So uh, I just started like following a bunch of people and whatever. So I, I don't even think I've seen your uh, top 15 on Letterboxd yet. So yes. this is going to be a mystery to me. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, have this, you know, <laughs> your list on unspooled to me as we go along here. So I also I say that I wrote it on, on Letterboxd. I go on Letterboxd once a year to write my top top movie list. <laughs> okay, that's cool. literally it. So I need to be better about updating my letterbox as well. Um, but yeah, I guess this is a big reveal then. Yeah. Okay. So let's start it off with honorable mentions. Do you have any that didn't make the list that you wanted to mention and, and sort of shout out here at the top? Okay. Honorable mentions uh, are Monster, which is directed by Hirokazu Koreeda, who directed uh, one of my favorite movies of ooh, 2018, Shoplifters. Um, next is Anatomy of a Fall. And then All of the Strangers, May, December, and Bo is Afraid. The last might be a bit of a divisive one, but nice. what a weird movie. I, I couldn't not include it in my honorable mentions. Excellent. Okay, so let's get into it. Let's do uh, your number 10 starting right now. What is your number 10 movie of 2023? 
All right, my number 10 movie. I have a confession to make first, uh, Ben. And it's that originally I had Godzilla minus one as my number 11 and Monster as my number 10. And then I thought, gosh, I think Godzilla minus one is actually in my top 10. So I switched the two. Nice. Uh, And so my number 10 is Godzilla minus one, which is directed by – Takashi Yamazaki, who uh, also did the write, who also wrote and did the visual effects for this movie, uh, it famously I think had like a ten million dollar budget and has it looks so much better than every other Hollywood blockbuster movie uh, in like right now. But you know those that's also kind of modern myth making stuff. I don't know if that's exact budget. I don't know if that's you know the exact numbers. So yeah. don't quote me on that. Um, but Godzilla minus one is a Godzilla movie that actually takes place uh, during and in the years following World War II. So it takes place during the original, kind of the original setting of the original Gojira. And um, this is a movie that I kind of went into not really expecting much because I'm not the hugest Godzilla fan. My favorite Godzilla movie is Shin Shin Godzilla, which you couldn't really describe as a Godzilla movie. It's more of a bureaucracy is evil scientist rule movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but i went into godzilla minus one and i was blown away by this film because it isn't particularly just a raw raw godzilla movie it's really about the human stories and the human connections like you spend maybe 20 percent of the film actually seeing Godzilla and the rest of the time is spent with the human characters. One is a former kamikaze pilot who uh, backed out of his mission uh, in a a feat of cowardice and um, ends up surviving and going back to Tokyo and sort of forming this found family with another um, orphaned woman and uh, a baby that she found in uh, the rubble. And um, it's just like this wonderful, really moving uh, story of these people whose lives get interwoven together and and picking end up picking themselves up from the ashes of World War II um, before Godzilla comes and wrecks everything. <laughs> and it's such an incredible film because it treats these human stories so seriously and it treats them with the prestige almost of a, an Oscar or art house um, level film. And I was so struck by that and so struck by the emotions that it uh, conveyed as well as being an awesome Godzilla movie and kind of being about sort of the, that original metaphor of Godzilla as that, um, the consequences of nuclear warfare and destruction. It's a great movie. It rules. Um, it will make you cry. It will make you cheer. Um, fantastic film. Yeah. I really think that, uh, that you nailed it. Like the reason that it's so good is because it has both of those, it has a, a foot in both of those worlds, like that awesome sort of like really killer, uh, spectacle stuff, but also the human stuff that it does better than I think any other Godzilla movie. So great pick for number 10. Uh, what is your number nine? My number nine is The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne and written by David Hemmingson, starring Paul Giamatti in maybe the most Giamatti role ever. He stars as a uh, professor at Barton Academy in the 1970s, which is a, in a New England boarding school. Uh, where um, he is kind of forced to be the teacher who is looking after the holdovers or the the students who don't have a home to go to or don't have or, or can't return to their parents for Christmas, and um, this is a cozy movie, despite what Alexander Alexander Payne might say. But there is an underlying melancholy and spikiness to it that I found really. Um, compelling and something that I felt that helped kind of make 
it even more rewatchable. The coziness and the the kind of um, more melancholy parts together made, made it such a, it feels like a Christmas classic, but also just a great character drama at that. And it's about these sort of fellow wounded, depressed souls who end up, who find themselves uh, kind of trapped together on Christmas and um, find their find that themselves to be kindred spirits in a lot of ways. I think Paul Giamatti is fantastic in this, uh, one of his best roles. Divine Joy Randolph is so, so good as a grieving mother who is uh, who works in the cafeteria and his work is uh, one of the few people who are staying over at the school. And then um, Dominic Sessa is such a discovery. This is his first role. He plays the troubled teenager who um, Paul Giamatti's character ends up looking after. And I was astonished to learn that this was his first major acting role ever he was such mm-hmm. a natural and he's so good against Giamatti he holds his own and he's so funny he's like like I, how I would describe his performance is as just like a walking smirk <laughs> but <laughs> he's great. like this lanky really angry young man and um I so love seeing him and Giamatti uh exchanged barb dialogue with each other everything that Paul Giamatti says in this movie is some of my favorite things, favorite lines of dialogue said in, in 2023. Um, I love The Holdovers. It's just um, <laughs> a movie that really grew on me. Um, I watched it with friends and was like, oh, this is the, the kind of movie I would watch with my parents over the holidays. And I watched it with my parents over the holidays. And I'm like, you know what? This might be one of my favorite movies of the year. And it was. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I uh, I saw the trailer for this and was very worried about the movie and then ended up totally loving it. So I think the trailer like sort of undersells what makes the movie really special. Um, and yeah, Dominic Sessa, like, I mean, there's so many things to talk about. Giamatti is, is great. D- Divine Joy Randolph is awesome. But like Dominic Sessa, I, I keep thinking about, um, there are a lot of actors that have that, you know, big breakout role and then they just kind of disappear and like nothing ever comes of their career or like they kind of sputter out or whatever. And I really hope that doesn't happen to him. I would love to see this kid in, you know, a bunch of stuff for the next 20 years or whatever. Like he just seems like he would be such a refreshing voice to that sort of young up and coming, you know, Hollywood star class, if you want to call it that. So yeah, um, he feels so much of the time of the seventies too. So I almost can imagine him in another time period, but I want to, I want to yeah. see him in more things. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So what is your number eight? My number eight is Past Lives, uh, written and directed by Celine Song and uh, in her future directorial debut, an incredible feature debut, um, and also based off of, loosely based off of her own life in which uh, she, um, the character played by Greta Lee, um, reunites with a childhood love, childhood friend slash maybe almost lover. Um, And um, this is a movie that... (laughs) I watched and was like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I don't really see what like the big deal is because like everyone was raving about this movie when it came out of the festival circuit. And then the final scene happens and we have this long stretch where Greta Lee is just walking away after having bid goodbye to her, her uh, childhood friend uh, played by uh, Teo Yu. And she just breaks down crying and she uh, uh, and her husband embraces her. And I found myself... <laughs> with this lump in my throat that I could not totally explain. It's a movie that I think does a lot more than what um, it does on the surface as sort of like a romantic uh, yearning film because what I found to be especially powerful was its kind of what it touches on about the immigrant experience, kind Mm -hmm. of um, how Greta Lee's character 
and Taeyu's character when she when she meets with him, she kind of uh, uncovers this sort of long forgotten part of her herself, her personality that she hadn't really maybe touched since she was a child. And it's it kind of reminds me of like this part of the immigrant experience of just like you always associate um, these people, these places with your childhood. And it's like when you move on from that chapter in your life, you kind of leave some part of that behind. And I found past lives to really, really eloquently kind of convey that and um, comment on that. And I found it to be really moving and just say so much with so little. Um, I cried after this movie. I'm crying right now. <laughs> it made me think a lot of just um, how my all my friends are getting married. And um, uh, I'm just like, wow, not a great time to watch this movie. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, uh, Past Lives. Yeah, it's it's a great movie. And it's very high up on my list as well. Uh, I haven't finalized mine, but it's it's maybe I mean, it's definitely competing for the number one spot. I'm, I'm glad that it's on your list. I, as soon as I saw it. You know, one of the first things I thought about was like, this is like HT core, you know, this is just like, you know, the, the sort of, um, Richard Linklater beyond sunset, sunrise, uh, midnight trilogy, the, the, um, yeah, the, the concept that the you were just talking about, movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, the, the immigrant, immigrant experience of it, like the, the New Yorkness of it, it, it all just felt like, oh, this is something that, w- that you would definitely connect to. So, uh, I'm glad that yearn. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, um, I'm surprised you haven't finalized your list yet when you're making me go through my top 10 right now. Well, I'm we, we sent in uh, lists for Slash Films Collective um, top 15 best movies that like the editors and, and some of the writers put together. Um, but like I'm trying to decide whether or not I'm going to just present my own list in that same order that I, you know, submitted it for, for that, or if I'm going to tweak it a little bit and make it like a podcast specific list to try to like spread some love around to some movies that, um, that a lot of people have already talked about when they've talked to me about their favorite movies of the year, just to sort of like maybe help evangelize for some smaller movies or stuff and stuff like that. So, uh, that, that's the only reason that there may be some uh, differentiation there, but, um, we'll see how that ends up shaking out. But, uh, Okay, so tell me about your number seven, HG. All right, my number seven is John Wick Chapter Four. Big pivot. Hell right yeah! Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, best way I could describe this movie, directed by Chad Stahelski, written by Shay Hatton, Michael Finch, and uh, starring Keanu Reeves in what is probably his last stint as John Wick. Who knows right now? Um, is exactly what you said, Ben. Hell yeah! <laughs> This movie rules. Um, It's a movie that was like my top movie for a long time up until, you know, we got to the fall movie season just because it's such a blast to watch. It's nonstop awesome from start to finish. The action, the action storytelling is some of the peak, the best stuff we've seen out of the John Wick franchise. And I honestly, the best action spectacle we've seen this side of Mad Max Fury Road. It's incredible stuff. Like I could just list all the awesome things that happen (laughs) and that would be my like review of it. Um, The uh, Arc de Triomphe car fight. Yep. Um, The apartment fight where it turns into a video game and John Wick uses, turns a shotgun into a (laughs) flamethrower. The staircase scene where John Wick falls downstairs for two minutes. Do you know that when John Wick Chapter 4 came to digital, Lionsgate 
knowing exactly who their audience is, pu- published an hour-long video of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not know that, but that's perfect. It's incredible. And that's exactly why John Chapter 4 is uh, my number – did I say seven? Yes, yeah. seven movie of Man, the year. that is killer. Yeah, the – I honestly, I kind of felt like pummeled a little bit by this movie. Like some of the action was so, um, I don't know, like uh, the, the, there's such an artfulness to the way that it's choreographed, but it's so um, samey after a while in terms of just like, you know, him running into a room and like headshotting 10 different dudes and like getting into different brawls or whatever. But the set pieces, especially the the three that you mentioned there are so like, um, like cheerfully uh celebratorily um creative that that you kind of like have to cheer at them when you see them like there's just no other reaction you can have than than just like fist pumping awesomeness when you know those big scenes happen so uh yeah i'm I'm very glad to see this movie appear on your list so that's dudes rock ben dudes rock okay so uh shout out donnie yen because he's awesome anyways oh yeah for sure. He is definitely one of those dudes who rock. Yes. Um, tell me about your number six. All right. Another extreme pivot, Ben. My number six is The Zone of Interest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Written and directed by Jonathan Glazer. Um, have you seen The Zone of Interest, Ben? I have, yes. Um, this is a movie that I think is best gone into knowing exactly, like literally nothing about this movie. So I want to speak about it very sparingly this is a movie chris that- talked about it earlier uh and it was on his uh list and he he gave away like the premise and he and i have had a conversation about it before on the podcast so you don't have to like tread too lightly if you don't want to but um we didn't the only thing that we have not talked about in depth on the podcast before is like the very very end of the movie mm. which is like a total gut punch and we've been talking about wanting to have a deeper conversation about that once the movie is more widely available to people. Um, So anything you can say about it, I think is fair game, except for just like outright spoiling what happens at the very, very end. And I think it's going in wide release this month. So you can get into that soon. Yes. Um, I will just talk about the sound design of this movie then. Mm. Um, It's incredible. Uh, It's so meticulously and artfully used and and deployed in a way that just so accurately guts you every single time you hear those noises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's such a well composited, well made, gutting movie um, that I I think never overstays its welcome. I don't even know if that's the right term to use. It never overplays its hand, more like, Mm -hmm. to employ another cliche. It never overplays overplays its hand. It knows exactly what it's doing, and it goes exact right for the gut, but it doesn't overplay itself. It doesn't overwhelm you. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's subtle, and it it makes you, like – I think the the movie is all about complicity, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. the way that the sound design – works in this movie is so subtle that it it kind of like turns the lens onto you as a viewer mm. and like because you never see anything it allows you to connect the experience of sitting there and you know experiencing what these characters are experiencing and hearing what they're hearing over the wall with all of the stuff that we're reading every day on social media about what's going on in different countries and wars and genocides and like all this terrible stuff and like the noises that you hear 
are they might as well be news reports and social media posts and stuff that we're sort of inundated with right now. And like the idea of the movie and, and the human experience right now is like, what do you do about it? Like, what is your response to hearing those things? You know, um, it's so powerful. And it's probably the most effective use of that kind of immersive sound design. And I feel like the next step in that evolution of immersive filmmaking, because immersive filmmaking is so much about like, the adrenaline, but this is about using that immersive filmmaking to, again, reveal how complicit you are as an audience member in, in a, while showing how complicit the main family is in this mm-hmm. film. Um, incredible, incredible film. Um, yeah, I don't want to speak on it too much just because it's just like such a film that's hard to kind of unpack anyways. Yeah. Um, all I will say is that after I watched this movie, the only thing I, I could say was, holy shit. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's take a break, and then we'll come back and talk about your top five movies of 2023. All right, let's get into your number five, HT. My number five is Asteroid City, written and directed by Wes Anderson. Um, This is a movie that um, I absolutely adored. I saw it a couple times in theaters. Um, It's a dollhouse within a play, within a Rubik's Cube of a movie, which in a way makes it so Wes Anderson that it's infuriating. But I love how Wes Anderson specifically uses the artifice of this movie and the the art of acting and performance to, again, do the, something that he does so well by breaking down that artifice and kind of reveal the emotional truth at the center of it. Mm-hmm. So... I, there, I can't um, take credit for this observation myself, but there, someone on Twitter <laughs> um, said, <laughs> said that this is, that Astro City is about the dollhouse. And, you know, the dollhouse is something that Wes Anderson has been uh, kind of um, associated with and criticized for. He play, he, his, films are, his films are made as dollhouses. They're, they're not in any way reflective of reality, but they are constructed to be like adult-sized playhouses, essentially. Um, But it's about being that comfort within the dollhouse and also why he finds comfort within the dollhouse because reality is so messy and big and weird and cosmic to make sense of. And I think that all the various themes that are going on within Asteroid City, which is a film ostensibly about a junior science convention that happens upon a UFO, but is actually about a play within a play within a TV movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just about making making sense of grief, making sense of the cosmos, and making sense of how, what our relations are with, to each other within that vast cosmos. Um, and I think it's really embodied by just this one shot um, in the film where one of the the science, junior scientists invention is uh, projecting something on the moon. It's projecting an image on the moon. It's and it's projecting a heart with their names with it on the moon as all chaos uh, <laughs> uh, ensues. And I think that's just like the sweet, cutesy, but surprisingly honest and tr- and sweet and truthful um, heart at the center of this movie. And also, yeah. I also want to shout out Margot Robbie's scene in this film, which I felt like totally broke, broke down exactly what this mil- fil- this film meant to me. Yeah. You're the wife who played my actress. Oh, 
Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I need to rewatch this movie. Um, you and Chris have both talked about it this week, and I, I absolutely need to throw this into my rotation and, and give it another go. But um, okay, your number four. My number four is Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Eric Roth, based on the uh, nonfiction book by David Grann, which uh, I'll admit I haven't read the entirety of the book. Um, but this is a film that, again, I feel like is about complicity. Um, it's about uh, Martin Scorsese kind of, in a way, playing with our expectations of what a Martin Scorsese film is. It's a gangster film. And he turns those expectations of those of that gangster film by, uh, on its, onto its head because he makes the POV of this film, ostensibly, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro's characters uh, who are the, the, char- the white men who are exploiting and murdering all these indigenous women for their head rights. And by placing them in the placing this movie in the POV of these these horrible, evil, um, like evil people who really represent the banality of evil, he makes us realize he he makes us realize how complicit we are with these kind of everyday monsters. Mm-hmm. It's a gangster movie is a monster movie. And I think that's such a fantastic way of playing on our expectations of a Scorsese movie and playing with the structure of the original book, which I, as far as I know, was kind of framed as a whodunit. I think making it sort of a reverse of that by making us realize or like from the get-go who the evil people were, who the yep. who the, the criminals were, um, is such a smart way of doing it. And, I, and again, the ending of this film does that, like hammers that in so well. Uh, with the true crime radio show that kind of is a play up upon those those final final text um, cards that always yeah. follow a biopic. Anyways, this movie's incredible. Everyone's so good in it. Uh, Lily Gladstone, uh, uh, the best person ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, I just think that this is a movie that, despite its long, long runtime, is worth revisiting so much. Excellent. Okay. So that's Killers of the Flower Moon. That was your number five, right? Uh, my number four. Oh, four. Oh, sorry. Okay. So your number three is? Poor Things, uh, written, uh, directed by Yoros Lanthimos and written by Tony McNamara, uh, favorite reunion. And I was looking forward to this because I'm a big Yoros Lanthimos fan, and I was so excited about its particularly maximalist aesthetic. Um, and it has Emma Stone starring in it as well. Um, So it follows Emma Stone, um, who is a reanimated woman, um, reanimated by uh, Willem Dafoe's mad scientist. And uh, she is essentially um, a woman who committed suicide and whose um, baby in her womb was, the brain of her her baby was placed in her. So she's a child in a grown woman's body Mm -hmm. uh, and retold as a Frankenstein story. And she goes on this... um, odyssey of sexual and emotional and intellectual discovery uh it is such a wild bizarre film and this is another sort of ht core movie (laughs) i absolutely love this film i loved how big it was i loved how surprisingly sentimental and hopeful it was for yogos lanthimos movie yogos lanthimos i always found to be an extremely sharp and extremely cynical filmmaker and Poor things, despite all that it kind of touches on about how humans are awful and stuff, it actually ends on a quite a sweet and uh, almost hopeful and optimistic note. Um, and I found it to be an extremely interesting riff on Frankenstein in that regard too, because um, 
in, I'm, I'm going to go into a little bit of Frankenstein nerdery. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> what I found to as to what I found so interesting about Poor Things as sort of like a riff on Frankenstein is that um, it's actually more accurate to Frankenstein's to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in that it's uh, it depicts the monster, so to speak, um, becoming more intellectual and becoming much more well spoken. By the time you meet Frankenstein's monster again in the latter half of the book, uh, he's this really well spoken. Um, almost human creature, but he's also incredibly, incredibly cynical and hates everything that he's seen of humanity and is is just like humanity deserves to die. Um, and I found poor things to be such an interesting reversal of that because you see Bella, Emma Stone's character, go through a similar um, journey in that she meets all of these different aspects of humanity, but ends up in a much more, hope- with a much more hopeful read of um of humanity because she can fix them literally yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great that's awesome i I not not really thought about it as like you know i, I think about it so much as a, a frankenstein analog but i've not really thought about it in terms of like a reverse frankenstein in some aspects so that's mm-hmm. great um cool okay so your number two then man we're getting close to the end here okay go getting ahead what's your number end. two my number two is Oppie oppenheimer <laughs> <laughs> Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan, and written by Christopher Nolan, too, uh, starring Killian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Um, what can I say about this movie? It it rules, but also it's such an incredible and withering uh, depiction of the systemic, um, systematic uh, de- like uh, breakdown of a man's legacy and um and his own psyche i yeah. thought it's it's christopher nolan employing everything that he has uh shown and learned throughout his career and creating this three-pronged temporal pincer movement to <laughs> display the the making of the atomic bomb but also the the uh, aftermath of it through these nonlinear, of course, because because it's Christopher Nolan, uh, boardroom uh, and legal proceedings, and I feel like there's so much to say about it. I've said so much about it already, but Christopher Nolan manages to draw more suspense and thrills out of boardroom scenes in this film than action than most action movies will get out of action scenes in 2023, yeah. and it's it's so. It's such an achievement. It's Christopher Nolan's magnum opus, and it's such a fantastic sort of, again, um, breakdown of one of the most, the most, the great, the greatest, but also most terrible achievements in human history. Um, very hand in hand with Killers of the Flower Moon, in that way. Um, just men looking back on what they have wrought. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my God, this movie is like, it's so ambitious. And I, I keep thinking about if this is what Christopher Nolan has done so far, like what is he going to continue to do? Like how does he, he's, he's always seemed to be like a level up kind of filmmaker. Like mm-hmm. everything that he's done has been like a step above the previous thing. I think if you, you can kind of trace that in that trajectory in his path. And I'm like, what what do you do after Oppenheimer? Like, how, how do you how do you elevate beyond that? Because this is just like such an elevated movie. So it's such an achievement. Um, it's it's a towering achievement. Yeah. Um, speaking of towering achievements, my number one. Yes, uh, tell is me. Very predictable to anyone who knows me. It's the Boy and the Heron, 
directed by Hayao Miyazaki um, and written by, by Hayao Miyazaki as well. Uh, this is Hayao Miyazaki's latest film, uh, not his last film because apparently he's back to work. Um, and it's a film that I have trouble describing because it's a very, very dense, very strange film that operates very heavily on dream logic, but also um, on kind of having to navigate the strange wilds of Hayao Miyazaki's own mind. Um, to put it succinctly, uh, this is about a young boy named Mahito who loses his mom uh, during World War II and uh, moves with his father to the countryside soon later to, with his, to live with his new stepmom and his aunt. Um, but in this countryside estate where they're living, strange things start happening. A gray heron starts luring him to a nearby tower uh, where the heron speaks to him and says that his mother uh, his dead mother is actually alive and waiting for him within the tower. And in that tower, he finds himself in an alternate world that is waterlogged and filled with fantastical creatures and a lot of birds that want to eat him. <laughs> Giant parakeets. Giant parakeets. This is a film, when I first saw it, I was so overwhelmed by it um, emotionally, narratively, thematically, and visually that I couldn't even say whether how how it fell within all the Miyazaki movies that I love. And Miyazaki, if you do not know me, is my favorite filmmaker of all time. He has been is such a formative filmmaker on me. Um, Spirited Away is still my favorite film. And it was the first film that kind of opened my eyes to what movies could be and would and what they can do. And um it The Boy and the Heron feels like such a again, culmination of everything Miyazaki has done and a maximalist sort of uh, just, I don't want to say vomit of everything that he is. <laughs> it kind of feels like that at some times though. Like there, there's such a in mixture a of like all the, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's such a mixture of all the, um, you know, because I, I, you, at your behest, at your convincing, I uh, recently watched all of Miyazaki stuff, like whatever that was, a couple years ago, I guess, at this point. Um, but like, it's so easy to to track those through those through lines and see, oh yeah, he's pulling this from this story and this from this story, and like these are themes that he returns to over and over again. Yes. But like this new mixture is so again like ambitious and just so. Um, it, it's not just him playing the greatest hits and like. Uh, you know, holding his arms out and like demanding adulation. Like this is a kind of a challenging movie. He's like, he's, it's, he's mixing all of those things that he has done before, but he's, he, he almost like doesn't care if you follow along with it or mm -hmm. if you are able to track it in like a linear way. It, it's, it's so, um, it's challenging, but like, Cake. yeah, yeah. And, and, but in a way that kind of like scratches your brain after you watch it and like makes you, you know, leaves you thinking about it in, in ways that like, many movies you just kind of forget about right after you leave the theater. But yes. uh, this is not one of those movies. It feels like a movie for him specifically. And if you are on along for the ride, then more power to you. But if you're not, then you're going to be left behind. But in that way, I, I admire it so much more because it's just, it feels so purely him, like him on the page. Because it's it's very much most his most intensely personal film. Uh, Mahito and his childhood growing up in at the end of World War II and Mahito's father uh, working in um, air airplane like manufacturing and work and, mm -hmm. and manufacturing um, 
fighter planes at the time, that was very much part of like Miyazaki's own childhood and his own sort of complicated feelings about how his father um, profited off of the off of the war and his guilt over that. And a lot of that is swirling around in this film. And he is both unpacking it and leaving it on the table for us, but also saying, like, this is just me trying to figure it out and trying to figure out what my legacy is and what legacy I'm leaving. And it's also about his descendants, about him what about him creating these fantastical worlds, escaping to these fantastical worlds through his art, through his creativity, through his movies, and then realizing that there these worlds are crumbling. There isn't anything left for him to create and that maybe his descendants don't need to keep creating and maintaining these worlds that he made for himself. Maybe that maybe reality is honestly better and maybe that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's also about how <laughs> he hates his son. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> um, a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of, a lot of things to enjoy if you're, especially if you're a Miyazaki fan and a lot of things to just kind of think on and, and have your thoughts provoked by. And I absolutely love this movie for it because it doesn't offer any easy answers, but allows you so much room for thought and food for thought. Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that uh, that we were able to continue this tradition, Aishi, and have you back on um, because this has just been a blast to be able to talk to you again on a podcast, which uh, I, I am like sad that it only happens once a year. But if, if that's what we have to do, then I will take it because I love talking to you about movies. So yeah, keep, um, keep it coming, Ben. See you Definitely. in 2025. <laughs> sounds good. Wow, that sounds so far away. Oh, that's God. insane. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I think that's going to do it for today's show. Uh, Ishi, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? I guess you can find me on Twitter, ugh, where I still am. Um, <laughs> I'm at htranbui. Uh, those are all my handles, actually, so you can find me there. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at htranbui. You can also find me on Blue Sky, if you have it, at htranbui. Um, I'm also... You know, writing and editing every day at inverse.com. Please check it out. I think we're doing really good work there. And um, I th- and it, you can sometimes find me writing about random stuff. Like I wrote a little Dudes Rock or Dudes Don't Rock essay at the end of the year last year. But I'm also doing a lot of reviewing over there and talking to cool directors and doing cool interviews. So uh, check me out over at Inverse. Excellent. And I will put a couple of links to the show notes uh, in the show notes for, for people to, to find your stuff there. Oh, um, also check yes. me out or checking, checking through time and space. My podcast oh, yeah. of Doctor Who and Star Trek. Yes. Co-hosted by Jacob Hall. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, okay. Well, this has been great, AC. Thank you so much for, for coming back. Uh, it's been, it's always a joy to talk yeah, to you. Thanks so. for having me on again. Definitely. Okay. So people, listeners, you can find more about all the movies that we talked about on today's show at slashfilm.com. And I will link to a few things again inside the show notes here. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That helps us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show, especially people who love TV and movies in your life. I I think they would probably enjoy it. Uh, Spread the word. Thanks very much for listening, and we will talk to you all next time.